You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. You know, whether it's marriage or our work relationships, our familial relationships, friendships, you know, on it goes. What we're going to look at here in God's Word really does show us this interplay of what God does and what we do in our relationships, especially as, as Jesus followers. Because really, you think about it, it is a balance of both. And we'll go to extremes here just to make the point, but there's, there's one camp that could say, well, you know, really, the, the basis of a successful relationship with whatever that looks like, friendship, marriage, whatever, is letting God work through you, is following the Holy Spirit and letting God, you know, let go, let God, let him guide, let him do the work. There is another camp that would say, no, what the basis of a successful relationship is about is what you put into it. You have to do the work. I mean, God helps those who help themselves, right? Which is Benjamin Franklin, not the Bible, and he stole it from someone before that. But you get the idea. You have work that you have to do in any type of relationship. So what is the fusion of those two realities? Is it one over the other? Which one is best? And the answer is yes. It is, it is both. The godly living that God calls us to is for him to do his work, but for us also to do our work. And this is one of those passages that we'll come to in the Bible where both are talked about. And these two verses in the book of Philippians are incredibly impactful and powerful and meaningful for our relationships as Jesus followers. And just to reset where we've come from and where we're going for those of you who may have been gone, earlier in chapter one of this letter, Paul says, live your lives, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then he begins to unpack what that means. And we've looked, like, looked at that in the last couple of weeks. It means being unified as a church family. It means contributing to, protecting, working for unity together. And that is accomplished through humility. How in the world do people who are so different like you and me come together and be the church through unity, through the work of God, but also through what we do? And this last week, we looked at the reality of our greatest example of humility is Jesus. But he's not only our example, he is our empowerment. He is the one who enables us to live the life God calls us to. So now we come to this place where Paul is going to marry these two realities together and he's about to get very specific about what humility looks like in our relationships with one another. And we'll go even deeper into specifics next week when Gary picks up the verses that follow these. But let's just look at these two values at work. God's work and our work. How does that work? Here we go. Philippians chapter two, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. There is so much in these two verses and we'll begin to just work our way through it. Now when you see a therefore in the Bible, what is the question you and I should ask ourselves? 
What is the therefore? Therefore, if you were with us last week, Paul just finished talking about the reality, the truth, that Jesus is God. Or to say that another way, Jesus is Lord. So because Jesus is Lord, we choose to live a life of humility. That is the starting place of a humble life is to live like Jesus and to live through his empowerment and that start, starts by recognizing his authority. So who is the authority in your life? If you know Jesus, it is Jesus. You are no longer the one exclusively calling the shots in your life. He is, so you align yourself with him, with what he wants. You follow him to use other descriptors in God's word, which is profoundly important for us to remember and to practice because we are tempted in our own brokenness as well as the influence of the culture around us to treat Jesus like he is the divine life coach or he is the great advice giver. And it does beg the necessary question and really the functional reality of who is the Lord of your life when you come to a crossroads in your life and God's word says one thing and you are struggling with doing another. Who's gonna make the call on that? If Jesus is Lord, then we follow him and we align our hearts with his. And the Philippians were known for doing that. Now, this is just my personal opinion, but in reading the letters that Paul wrote to other churches, this seems to be the healthiest, most vibrant church that he wrote to. He talks so much about his joy in them, and it was not a perfect church. When we get deeper into this letter in future weeks, we're gonna see they had their struggles too, but by and large, he says this was a church that loved Jesus as Lord and that lived in humility but it's very interesting here what he does and what he says he says as you've always obeyed and then he says continue on in that before he commands them he commends them and this is a little aside but this is an invaluable principle for relationships here when Jamie and I were first starting having kiddos we got some really wise advice from someone who said, look for opportunities to catch your kids in doing what's right and good and then commend them for it. Call attention to it. Because as a parent, necessarily, you were so much charged with the responsibility to correct your kids, to guide them. And it's so easy to make parenting really exclusively about that and to focus entirely on that. Unfortunately, I think one of the first words our kids would learn wasn't mommy or daddy, it was no, right? As you parent, but this was a game changer for Jamie and me because it enabled us to watch for and then commend and celebrate and encourage and reinforce when our kids would make a wise decision, when they would do something that, that they would need to do when they were responsible. So do you look for opportunities as a parent for those of you who are parents to commend your kids? But you can apply this to any authority relationship. Those of you who supervise, who manage, who have responsibility and authority over someone else. Not a bad principle to put in play. And that's what Paul does here. He commends them 
as he is commanding them because they, they did do this. And he takes it a step further. He calls them dear friends. Another way to say this is beloved. He's really making a powerful appeal here. But then he tells them to do this. Work out your salvation. That seems a little troubling. Because is he saying here that they are to earn their salvation? It kind of sounds like it, at least on the surface. But is that really what it's saying? I've had people ask me about this. In, in earlier seasons of my life, I kind of wrestled with this before I really understood what was being said here. Because it seems to, to suggest that, you know, salvation is something you earn or is based on what you do. It doesn't say that at all, right? First, the grammar doesn't support it. It doesn't say work for your salvation, It says work out your salvation. And secondly, we've seen this before in this very letter. We don't need to go beyond this letter to answer this. Because what Paul does in his other letters, in his other writings, is he will talk about salvation in past tense, in present tense, and in future tense. And in this very letter, if you'll remember with me, look what he said. He said, I know through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And another word for deliverance is salvation. It could also be translated salvation and is in other versions, meaning what Paul is saying here is that being in prison, when he wanted to be out planting churches, introducing people to Jesus outside the walls of a prison ministry, not inside the walls having a prison ministry, when he was in this place that was a hard, painful, difficult place, when there were people, as we read on in chapter two, who were out there ironically trying to cause trouble for him by preaching the gospel, How can he say these things are working together for my deliverance? These things are working to save me. He can say that because being in prison was underscoring the reality that his significance, his value, his joy was not found in his circumstances. His significance, his joy, his value, what God called him to was not found in what other people thought of him or were saying about him. And he's saying, actually, those things are saving me These circumstances are saving me from finding my value in them. Ironically, these are working for my benefit. And so what's the point here? This is not about receiving Jesus. This is about living out your relationship with Jesus. This is about sanctification, which is that big churchy word for becoming more like Jesus as he he works in our lives. So not about the decision to follow Christ, the decision to become more like Christ, the process. Because at the end of the day, our salvation, stepping over from death to life, is not about our resume. It never has been, it never will be. It's about will you respond to what Jesus has done for you and me on the cross by either rejecting that or receiving that into your life through his spirit. So that's a relief. This is not about earning your salvation, but not so fast. Did you see what follows that statement? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a little weird, at least seemingly. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, there are those things that you come across in your Bible where it's very tempting to just read past it. 
Not spend too much time on it. Just, oh, it says that, and move on. But, but what, does that, what does that mean? And we necessarily should wrestle with this. Because scripture has a lot to say about this. And there are layers to this. And it's important that we understand it. And how it relates to becoming more like Jesus. By way of example, there are 365 commands in the Bible to not what? Do not fear. Most repeated command in scripture. Do not fear. Yet, this is telling us we should fear. In fact, if you're like me and you're reading in other parts of your Bible, by way of example, when I was reading Proverbs earlier this week, I read this, the what of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I mean, basically what this is, what this is saying here is, if God drove a car, this would be a bumper sticker on that car that says, fear this. By the way, what kind of car do you think God drives if he was to drive a car? You know, we're in the Northwest, so probably a Prius, right? <laughs> Although you'll like this one. When I was taking our son, when we were taking our son back to Montana, we got passed by this huge Mondo four-wheel drive with this proud, massive bumper sticker in the back window that says, one more Prius is off the road because of me. <laughs> and I thought, there it is. Maybe that's what God would drive. But actually, someone in the last service told me what God would drive. They said, this is scriptural. We'll see what you think. I think God drove a Honda because the Bible says all the disciples were with Jesus and were in one accord. <laughs> I'm just the messenger, okay? I'm not responsible for that. And who cares what car God drives, right? Seriously? But we do have to do business with this. It is fundamentally important that we understand this. And one of the best ways to understand this was some guidance I received from Gary and the preaching team this week. And by the way, whenever you hear one of our sermons, there are six other fingerprints on it because we work on our sermons as a crew. All that being said, they guided me back to Exodus and it's very helpful in understanding what Paul's talking about here. Just to reset things, remember with me, God delivers his people out of Egypt, out of captivity, brings them to the base of Mount Sinai, and then he appears, he comes down to the top of the mountain. And remember the picture of God in scripture is that he is always trying to get closer and closer and closer to his people, culminating in him coming to live inside of us through the Holy Spirit. That's how close God wants to be to you and me. He wants to be really, really near. He wants to be inside us, and he is, if you know him, as your Lord and Savior. But here's God coming to be near his people, and watch how the people respond. Exodus 20, 18 through 20. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear, and they stayed at a distance. And said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, do not fear. God has come to test you so that the what? The fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. There's a lot of different uses of fear in that, right? So should the people have feared God? Yeah. I just showed you a verse from Proverbs. There are a number of verses that say we are to fear the Lord. But to reverence him. I mean, do you, 
you do understand who created everything we see, who created the universe. The power behind that, the majesty. You see the example like I do in scripture of when God appears, people are flat on their face before him or even one of his representatives, an angel, they are flat on their face before that kind of power and majesty in awe, overcome because he's God. So we should reverence him. We should fear him in that way so that we will obey him because if they would have feared God in the way he intended and wanted for them, then they would have obeyed him because they would have been afraid of his punishment. Because didn't God say very explicitly, very clearly, if you do these things, I will bless you and I really wanna bless you. I will bless you beyond what you could imagine. But if you don't obey me, I will punish you. I will discipline you and this is what's going to happen to you. And how did the people respond? They feared his presence. They said, God, we don't want to be near you. They responded in terror, that kind of fear. And therefore, because they did not reverence him, they didn't obey him. They didn't fear his punishment. And history tells us that his people time and time and time again disobeyed him, did not trust him, did not follow him because they didn't fear him. It does matter how you and I live our lives. And if you are a Jesus follower, in Romans 8, verse 1, it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not out to get you. God is not out to catch you screwing up. However, God's love and his justice are never separated like they are in our culture. And in so many people's thinking and living, Those are not mutually exclusive. They are inseparable. God is a loving God. God is also a a just God, and he will hold everyone to account. So this gets real practical real quick. If we go back to what we were looking at last week, how do you do battle with selfish ambition and vain conceit? You remember who God is and who you're accountable to. That's, that's very necessarily motivating. But there's work that God wants to do in our lives as well. Look what he goes on to say. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now we see this, this other side of it's our work, but it's also God's work and working in us. And it's fundamental that we welcome his work in our lives. That's how God's work works. Philippians 1.6 talks about this reality. We've already seen this as we've journeyed through this letter. He who began a good work in you will carry it forth to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. God is working in profoundly powerful ways in our lives, whether, whether we know it or not, in order to accomplish his, his purposes. And by welcoming his work in your life and mine, it very tangibly, practically means this. It means we welcome the work of of the Holy Spirit. And my concern for some of you is that you don't welcome God's work in your life because this whole Holy Spirit thing's a little weird and you don't understand it. And some of you have seen abuses of the Holy Spirit where people have said, well, God told me this and he really didn't, or God said to do this and he really didn't, or God's gonna do this and he didn't follow through, and you've said, I want nothing to do with that. And you're right, you shouldn't have anything to do with that because that wasn't the work of God, but God does work. 
And for us to be who he's called us to be, we have to be sensitive and responsive and welcoming of his Holy Spirit. We devoted an entire sermon series to this in 2013. It's uploaded to our website and our archives. If you've never heard that, please go and listen to that sometime. Because we spent extended time talking about this is who the Holy Spirit is. He's not Casper the Friendly Ghost and he's not an it. He is God. He lives inside of you. He will compel you and guide you and protect you and motivate you and inspire you to live out God's work in your life. And if you don't know him in terms of recognizing him, if you don't trust him, if you don't understand him, you are gonna miss out on the profound blessing of God when we cooperate with his work in our lives. And I'll give you a tangible. There is someone who is new to grace who recently was telling me about an encounter they had with someone here after one of our services. This person is a Jesus follower. And they were talking to this other person and they they noticed as they were meeting and talking with this other person that this other person was really upset. And ordinarily, they would just, you know, exchange pleasantries and talk a little bit and then move on. And she said she felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to not do that, but to genuinely ask, well, what's really going on? This is someone she doesn't know. But she really felt like that's what God wanted her to do, so she did. And it turns out that this woman who was upset and struggling with some things is going toe-to-toe with cancer, just diagnosed. And the person who she was talking with, this person who initiated the conversation, has done battle with cancer three times in her own life. Do you not think that she could understand and connect with and minister to this other lady in a way that no one else could? Because she's been there. Wow, what a coincidence. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is exactly what we're talking about. Is welcoming his work in our, in our lives And this is, once again, in our lives. Because look at this. This escaped me the first time through when I was reading this. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is a plural, your. If we were in the South, we'd be saying, all y'all. This is all y'all. And I know we don't talk like that because we're good Northwesterners, but the principle is the same. And if you think about this reasonably with me, As we read scripture, so much of life is talked about in plurality in God's word. By way of example, the Great Commission, the last recorded words we have of Jesus in Matthew 28, before he ascended to heaven, he said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Don't be impressed, it's the only verse I have memorized. But that is plural language. We don't do that individually. We do that as a community. Everything in there is community. It is plural. It's all y'all. We experience and welcome God's work together by doing life together. And at the end of the day, as we looked at last week, the essence of humility, the expression of humility, the outpouring of humility is serving. That's what Jesus exampled to us. The Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve. And so a humble life is a life that serves others. And folks, it starts here. That's what Paul is talking about. And it just so happens that this syncs with this sermon series. But every fall we do a ministry fair, you walked past those tables on your way in here this morning 
But this time every year, we try to give you as much exposure as possible to what God is doing around here and the ways that you can be a part of it. And it just happened to land on this very Sunday when we're talking about this reality. But I'm gonna ask you two things with this. Number one, after the service today, I'm sure you're busy and you've got places to be, but if at all possible, would you just take a moment and would you walk the lobby out there? And would you see the number of ways that you are serving this community and the community outside these walls? It is astounding. I've heard all morning, I had no idea we had a ministry geared towards that. But we do. The other thing I would ask you is, as you're taking in everything, would you consider serving on one of those teams? Now, there are seasons of life where it's not possible for you to have a formal ministry commitment like that. Maybe there's um, health issues. You know, okay, but before we take a pass on that, there is this mentality when a church gets the size that ours is that someone else is gonna do that. Oh, they must have plenty of resources. Someone else is gonna, no, no. I know this is gonna be a shocker to you, but I do not have all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And neither do you. We need each other, and if you are not engaged somehow, some way, at some point, at some time in serving, somehow within this community, you are missing out. You are hindering your growth in Jesus and who he wants you to be, and I am missing out because I'm missing out on the expression of your gifts in my life. It is for your benefit and your advantage and mine. God's designed it that way. It's almost like it's on purpose, and it is where we mutually bless one another by serving together and serving one another. But if we could be really honest, sometimes you just don't feel like it. I mean, can we be honest? Aren't there those times when you have opportunities to serve, like what we're talking about here this morning, within the walls of the church, but even outside the walls of the church, you know that God's giving you an opportunity to serve and you think to yourself, yeah, no. I'm busy, I'm tired, I've gotta to get to that, I've got this to do, I, someone else can do that, that's, that's not my side of the street. Of course you feel like that. But you ever felt God lead you that way and felt like not doing it and then followed that with, God would you change my heart? I mean we'll ask God for things and for blessings, and and for us, and we should. He wants us to, but what about asking him to change our hearts when we don't feel like doing something? When we don't feel like serving? Because those times will come when God will serve up, excuse the pun, a golden opportunity for you to serve, and once again, you'll be confronted with, okay, what do I do with this? The Spirit seems to be compelling me to step into this. Am Am I going to? God's work, our work. That's how it works. For those of you who are football fans, this is for you. And for those of you who aren't, this also is for you. Do you know who that is? Oh, I heard it. One person. 
And you may not be able to recognize it because it's a dark picture, and I get that. That's a picture of Mike Singletary. And for those of you who aren't fo- you know, into football or maybe don't, fo- haven't followed football in the last 20, 30 years, you go, oh, who's that? Mike Singletary is considered to be one of the greatest middle linebackers who's ever played in the NFL. He is already in the Hall of Fame, and he's pretty young to have made it into the Hall of Fame already. You maybe have heard of him because he's coached some NFL teams here in recent years. He's considered one of the top 100 players to ever play the game, yada, yada, yada. But he is amazing, and he's crazy. Because as you look at this picture, what you maybe not can't make out is his eyes are about this big. And he would line up across someone who he was supposed to tackle, and there'd be some people between you and him, and if you were the one he was going to tackle, his eyes would be really wide, and he'd be staring you down, and he would get to you no matter who was standing between you and him. And this guy measured the success of his seasons by how many football helmets he broke on other people. And I remember reading an interview from him in this, in this magazine where he said, you know, when I tackle a guy and we run into each other and there's this huge collision, I'm happy for him and I'm happy for me because we just hit really hard and I'm going, this guy's a fruit loop. And this guy's crazy. Incredibly intense. Part of the 1985 Chicago Bears defense considered to be one of the best defense to, to ever play the game. In fact, there was a running back who played during his day, and we'll move on in just a second, but who played during his day by the name of Eric Dickerson. Eric Dickerson, in an off-camera interview, off the record, that unfortunately got published as the record said, that the only football player he played against who he consistently feared through college and the NFL was Mike Singletary because of how hard he hit. And someone asked Mike Singletary, what is the secret of your success? How have you ascended to this level? And whether it's football or any other endeavor, this is where the principle becomes applicable to your life and mine. He said without hesitation, there are no shortcuts. You must do the work. When I don't feel like going to the gym, I go to the gym. When I don't feel like playing football because I'm sick or I'm tired, I go out and I play football when I'm sick and I'm tired. There are absolutely no shortcuts. You must do the work. There's no way around it. But what I learned some years after I heard that is that Mike Singletary is a Jesus follower. He's a believer. His dad was a pastor. That doesn't make you a believer, but it does give you exposure to the gospel from an early age. And at an early age, he received Jesus Christ into his life. And about the time I learned this, I went to a conference back east at his church. I didn't know it was his church at the time. It's called Willow Creek. Huge mega church. For the last 30, 40 years, arguably one of the most impactful churches in our, in our country, in our culture, do these huge conferences. I mean, they, they just, they do everything so well. I remember walking in this facility, huge facility, largest church I've ever been in. God has just blessed them with amazing, amazing resources and amazing impact. And I remember going to this conference and thousands of people at this conference and afterwards hearing a story. And someone was telling me, do you know who was part of the team that helped get that facility ready for that conference? I said, no, I don't know. Do you know who is pushing a vacuum in those hallways to get ready for that conference? I said, no. It's Mike Singletary. Here is this multi-million dollar, 
hall of fame, highly successful by the world standards and really anyone's standards athlete who is serving his church family by pushing a vacuum in the back hallways. And not long after that, there was a picture of him where someone had caught him doing that, took his picture, and he reluctantly had given an interview. And they had asked him, why do you do this? And he said, because I get to serve without looking for credit, without people around me. This is a way I serve my church family and my God because of all he has done for me. And on another occasion, when interviewed, he said this, I don't know what tomorrow brings. I know who holds tomorrow, and that gives me reason to not worry about it, or to say that another way, to not fear. I put everything I have into today, and I do the best that I can today. But there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that, would take, that I would take in place of my faith. To me, Christ means everything. Our work, God's work. When your Lord presents you with an opportunity to serve this week, how are we gonna respond? Will we serve the way he served us? May that be our motivation. Would we serve because he has first served us and would we not ever forget that? So as our worship team comes, we are gonna praise and worship this amazing God who has done so much for us on, on our behalf. We can legitimately stand, as his, stand in his presence and sing how marvelous his name is because he is the God who draws near and the God who has first loved us and first served us. And so in response, we love and serve him because living out the gospel is always a response to what God has done for you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you love us, that you have served us by giving your very life so that we can have ours, so that we can have right relationship with you and with one another because of your sacrifice, because of your service. And God, thank you that the path to joy and fulfillment and significance and hope is by doing life on your terms, by believing you for what you say that to be first is to be last, that to be served is to first serve others, and to gain our life means we lose it, because what you offer us is so much better. Thank you, Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.